Let me pray, and we'll look at that passage. Um, Father, thank you so much for this passage. Thank you for, uh, Lord, the word that you have given to us that is useful for our um, correction and teaching and training. Um, And Lord, would you use it this morning? Um, Lord, help us to understand what it is uh, to be people who love. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Well... Uh, It was our 10th anniversary, and we went on a trip to Barcelona. We were living overseas, so that was actually a cheap trip to go to Barcelona. And uh, on our anniversary, the actual day, I thought, oh, I want to do something very special for Emmy. And she's always wanted to go to, you know those restaurants where you get like nine courses, and each one is about one bite? Uh, And so I was like, okay, I'll book something for us for our 10th anniversary, but I'll just make sure that I know where the fast food places are after so that I can feel full after this meal. And I uh, contacted them and told them when we were coming and all that. And then they asked, is, there, is this a special occasion? Is there anything like going on like what, for the reason that you're coming? And I said, it's our 10th anniversary. So if there's anything special you can do, we'd really appreciate it. Um, and honestly, they didn't need to do anything special because it was special already. Uh, you know, you just get this incredible treatment by the waiters and waitresses that are there and they just come around you all the time making sure you have everything you need. It was really wonderful, uh, an incredible meal. And actually, believe it or not, I was pretty full at the end of it. Um, I didn't need to go to McDonald's or whatever fast food place was next door afterwards because I was pretty full. But here's, here's where the whole night got a little strange. Um, we got to the end of our nine courses and they said, hey, we have an extra course for you. Uh, so please don't leave yet. Uh, we, just, we have something extra special for you. Um, and now remember, we're in a different country, and sometimes there's language barriers and things like that. And so we're sitting there waiting, and all of a sudden they come out from the kitchen with a, a nice little chocolate cake. And on top of that chocolate cake are those candles, you know, like the, the numbers. So it had the number 10 on it, and it was all lit. And so they, they come walking out, and everyone's looking, and they're starting to make a big deal about us being there. And so everyone in the whole restaurant is now looking and watching over here, and they come over, and they take the cake, and they put it right in front of Emmy, And they say, not happy anniversary, but happy birthday. (laughs) Which was an extremely awkward moment for me as if I had taken a 10-year-old to a romantic restaurant. And she does look younger than she is, but maybe not quite that young. But, you know, bringing up a topic like love the day before Valentine's Day can be about as awkward as that moment. Because I know what you're thinking. I know, I know exactly what you're thinking. You're thinking, great, a series on love starting the day before Valentine's Day. Here we go, a series about singleness and dating and marriage at exactly the time of year when I feel worst about whichever of those situations apply to me. Is that how you're feeling? I mean, after all, I and millions of others have had this chapter read at our weddings. Well, let me set you at ease because contrary to how this passage is often used, Paul did not write 1 Corinthians 13 for weddings and dating advice. Uh, although you can definitely apply it in those relationships. But he actually wrote this chapter so that people would learn what he calls the most excellent way. Um, So we're not going to be talking about singleness and dating and marriage in this series. Uh, Like I said, you can apply it to those areas of your life if you like, but that's not what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about this most excellent way to live that Paul talks about here. And here's what it is. This is the most excellent way. It is self Denying sacrificial love for the sake of others. That's the most excellent way. Self-denying sacrificial love for the sake of others. Now, as soon as I say that, the hair on the back of your neck stands up. 
because self-denial is almost a four-letter word in a place like Los Angeles. Because in our city, we talk about things like self-love. And so the thought of self-denial comes across as something more like self-destruction. You hear self-denial and you think, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not what we talk about in our culture. Now, the sort of textbook definition of self-love is that ability to put your physical, emotional, spiritual, and hygienic needs first in your own life. That's the textbook definition of self-love. And then self-destruction is actually when a person doesn't do that. They don't or they can't look after their own physical, emotional, spiritual, or hygienic needs. Or even worse, they actually act out in ways that are detrimental to those needs. Uh, And so that's sort of textbook self-destruction. But when we talk about self-denying love, we're talking about neither of those things. And I think what we'll see as we dig deeper into this chapter of the Bible is actually that self-denial is nothing like self-destruction. And get this, if we can learn self-denial, sacrificial love, if we can learn that, we will actually learn to love ourselves more fully. And so it actually frees us up to do the thing that our culture is saying we should do. Uh, Because look at the kind of person we'll become if we learn the most excellent way of love from Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. Did you see that in there? We will become patient and kind and non-envious, humble, not proud, non-angry, non-resentful. We won't hold grudges anymore. We'll be truthful. We'll be trusting. We'll be hopeful. We'll be persevering. And to me, that sounds like the kind of person who is uh, entirely equipped to faithfully love not only other people, but themselves. And so it just might be that the way to best love yourself, the, you know, where people like to say become the best version of yourself, it just might be that the best way to do that is to learn the most excellent way of self-denying love from 1 Corinthians 13. So we're going to do this for a few weeks. Um, and not there yet. Go back. I don't want them to see that yet. Thanks. Um, That's that's a surprise for everybody. Uh, So we're going to look at this for a few weeks. um, And today we're just going to get the lay of the land. We're going to look at this chapter as a whole. uh, And then in future weeks, we'll dig in more deeply into its individual parts. And so today, just three things. We're going to look at the description of love, the goal of love, and the source of love. The description, the goal, and the source of love. So first, the description of love. Um, Now you can put that up. Um, This is a little exercise for us. Um, And uh, what's on the screen is just the the middle section of this passage, verses 4 through the first part of verse 8. And I put a blank everywhere that either the word love or the pronoun for the word love should be there. And I want you to just take a minute to read this. And everywhere you see the spot where it should say love or where it says it, um, I put that blank. And I want you to replace it with your name. So, for example, you could say Ken is patient. Ken is kind, um, but not my name, your own name. Okay, so just take a moment, replace your name where those blanks are. Um, Go ahead and do that. feeling. Does that describe you well? You know, if someone was to say, hey, could you just write a little paragraph about yourself? You might just go ahead and do that. I'm guessing you're feeling a lot like I am right now, which is pretty rubbish. 
uh, I don't need to think too many hours, let alone minutes, back into my past to find myself being impatient on the road on the way here or being unkind to a friend or envious of another person's situation in life or maybe worse, proud of my own situation in life over against another person's. And so, yeah, we should feel pretty convicted by that little exercise, but it should also show something about Paul's method here. Because notice, Paul doesn't give uh, like a, a comprehensive definition of love. What we have here is not a definition, but actually a description of love. He even hints at why he struggles to give this definition, because it's, it's nearly impossible, or it's, it is actually impossible probably to define something that is infinite. It's very hard to define something that's infinite just by definition. And so further down in verse 12, he says that what he's talking about here is something we only see like as a, as a reflection in a mirror. The old translations used to say, in a, we see it only in a mirror darkly. And the picture there is that these old ancient mirrors, they weren't the kind of mirrors we have now. They were, it was hard actually to see very clearly in them. In other words, the definition of love is something that you can see, but at the same time, you can't see all of it. Only a partial reflection, like in one of those old ancient mirrors. And why is that? Well, it's because the only definite definition we get of the word love is given to us by the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. He says this. Uh, you can go to the next slide. One more. God is love. And of course, in doing that, John has he's defined love as an infinite attribute of an infinitely perfect and good God. In other words, what both John and Paul are saying is you, you cannot understand love apart from understanding God himself. And because we're finite beings, at best, the best we can only see what love is sort of in a mirror, darkly, only as an imperfect reflection. And therefore, rather give a definition of the word love, Paul gives a description of it. And while most of us, myself included, I think would prefer a definition, on further reflection, actually a description is better because a definition, it's like a piece of information that we can know. It's a, it's a fact. It's something we can sort of tuck away in our minds and categorize, perhaps like your knowledge of history or math or marketing or maybe the software that you use at work or the lines of a script or just your way around the city. Like those are facts. Those are things that you can just file away. But a description is different, isn't it? A description is actually meant to come alive. And that's why, you know, when you read a novel, it's a couple hundred pages rather than three pages. If you took out the description of the locations or of the clothing or the manner in which the dialogue is spoken, you'd just be left with a plot. A good novel is one where the descriptions actually bring the story to life. And this is Paul's aim with this passage. He actually wants to bring love to life for us. To like actually see it played out in front of us. Uh, because you know actually how he talks about love is back in chapter 12, the last uh, chapter right before this, the very last verse of it says this, it'd be on the screen. And yet I will show you the most excellent way. And then to bookend it, if you skip all the way past chapter 13 and go to verse 1 of chapter 14, the very next one, Paul then says, here's what the way is. It's follow the way of love. And so Paul is saying here, what he's saying is not that this self-denying love, it's not that it's just meant to be like one aspect of our lives. 
It's not just the as- an aspect of the life of a Christian. It's not one piece of our lives. What he's saying is self-denying, sacrificial love, that's the whole thing. That's the entirety of the Christian life. Love is an entire way of life. The most excellent way, chapter 12, is the way of love, chapter 14, and in the middle is the description. Now, there's one more thing we need to see in this passage in order to drive this point home even further, and that's that the context of chapter 13, both chapter 12 and chapter 14, these two chapters surrounding the one we're looking at, and both of those chapters, Paul is talking about spiritual gifts. And a spiritual gift, it's a special ability given to a Christian by the Holy Spirit as a way to serve others. Uh, And so that's actually the subject that Paul is addressing when he comes to chapter 13. He's talking about ways that the church is gifted to serve one another. That's the subject of the whole thing. And so technically then, chapter 13 is the center of a wider conversation about spiritual gifts. And the point is this. Love is not one of the spiritual gifts. It's not as if some people in the church have the gift of love, like someone might have the gift of preaching or serving or leadership. Love is not a spiritual gift. It's a requirement. It's a way of life. In other words, no matter what gift you possess, if you exercise that gift without love, Paul says in verses 1 to 3, your gift is useless. In fact, that's even not as harsh as he puts it. He puts it much harsher. He says, if you exercise these amazing gifts without love, he says, you are nothing. You and I are nothing. We're useless. And what Paul is saying very strongly here is this. It is a requirement for Christians to grow in love. That's a requirement. There isn't a Christian in the room who gets to say, hey, that was a great sermon about self-denying love. I really enjoyed that. That was great. For, for everyone else. You don't get to say self-denying love isn't my gift, so I don't have to sacrificially love others. You, we just don't get to say that. Self-denying love is an entire way of life, and it is the way of life for every single Christian. It's not an aspect of the life of a Christian. It is the life of the Christian. And so let's fill in the blanks again. Go and put that back up there. These things that are listed here, this is who we should be becoming. This is who we're becoming. Now, why do I keep saying self-denying love? Well, that's actually point two, the goal of love. Now, remember the context of this passage. Paul's talking about spiritual gifts. An interesting thing Paul says about the Corinthian church way back in chapter one, he actually says they don't lack any spiritual gift, that they've got all the gifts. They have all of them. They're a very gifted church. Perhaps they're the most gifted church in the history of the church, that they've got them all. And yet what Paul is saying here is spiritual gifts, that's not the marker of Christian maturity. He's saying it doesn't matter how gifted you are. You could be incredibly gifted. Your gifting is not a marker of your maturity. It's not a marker of Christian maturity. Uh, We just got back last night from... uh, visiting uh, where we used to live in England, in Liverpool, and I was there for some work, and to, we were there to visit some old friends, and while we were there, there were a few people who had never been to the city before, and uh, so I ended up giving a couple of tours of the city. And uh, there's a, a building there, the Liverpool Anglican Cathedral, I'll put this up on the screen for you, and go to the, that slide, one more, there we go. 
so that's the Anglican Cathedral. And I don't know if you can tell, but it dominates the skyline of the city. Like those buildings that are in front of it, they're actually closer to you and they look like tiny little houses. A lot of those are like seven, eight, nine story buildings. That's how big the cathedral is. In fact, it's the fourth largest cathedral in the world. Uh, and it, I mean, everybody likes to have their, we're the best of this. So it is the longest cathedral in the world end to end. <laughs> Uh, the interesting thing about that cathedral is um, in, in, the, in their culture, uh, when you become, you know, sort of cathedral city, uh, when you become a city that has a bishop, you have to have a cathedral. You have to have the big building. You must have it. Uh, but the very first bishop of Liverpool was uh, a guy named J.C. Ryle. And he's like, look, buildings are not what define us as spiritual people. That's not, that's not how people will know that we're a spiritual city. And so for 20 years, he was Bishop of Liverpool uh, from 1880 to 1900. And for those 20 years, he fought tooth and nail for there to be no cathedral built. Uh, and then guess what happened? He died in 1900. In 1901, they broke ground. <laughs> and they built the fourth largest cathedral in the world. And it's smaller than it was intended to be. It was probably going to be the maybe second or third largest in the world. Uh, but two world wars helped kept them back from raising enough money. And listen, here's what those people were saying when they want to build this giant cathedral. They're basically saying, we want to be marked out as a spiritual city. Liverpool is actually a city that has two cathedrals. There's a huge Catholic cathedral as well. We want to be marked out as a spiritual city. The city is spiritually dead. But they've got two cathedrals. This is what the Corinthian church was doing in verses 1 to 3. They're saying, hey, look how spiritual we are by our knowledge, by our faith, by our extremely generous giving, even by our suffering. So they're saying, hey, by our outward symbols, look how spiritual we are. Look how mature we are. But notice what Paul says there. You can't have or do any of those things to, you, sorry, you can have or do any of those things to the highest degree. But if you don't have love, you're nothing. You're not spiritually mature. There's only one obvious marker of a Christian's growth towards spiritual maturity, and it's this. It's that they are learning and growing in their willingness to sacrificially love another person. That's the marker. So someone could be an amazing preacher, but if they're not growing in their willingness to give out self-denying love, they are not a mature person. Someone could be an extremely gifted administrator or musician or evangelist or Sunday school teacher or whatever it is, you name the gift. They could even be extremely gifted at pouring coffee. But if they do it without love, without growing in your willingness to sacrificially love other people, then you're not a person who's maturing. Now, again, why do I keep saying self-denying love? Why do we keep talking about this self-denial thing? Well, look at the middle of the passage. Right in the middle of the passage, in verse 5, it says, it is not self-seeking. Love is not self-seeking. The old translations say, love seeks not its own. And the person who is maturing in love, what this means is they don't grasp for their rights they don't see other people or objects only as a means to their own personal enjoyment or advancement. The person who is maturing in love finds joy and wealth in self-denial for the sake of others. 
And do you see the difference there? Rather than finding joy and wealth in what a person can get for themselves, a person maturing in love finds joy and wealth in what they can do and provide for others. Now, let's just think for a minute about who Paul has in mind here, because there's some people who are relatively easy to love. Um, but let's think about who Paul has in mind here. You know, he did that exercise, and it was like, Ken is impatient. This is true. But who do I most want to be impatient with? Impatient people. Who do you want to be unkind to? Unkind people, don't you? Who do you want to dishonor? Someone who's dishonored you. In other words, Paul is talking about a love that is expressed not to a person who deserves it, because you're not going to be unkind to a kind person. You're not going to be impatient with a patient person. No, it's Paul's talking about loving a person not who deserves it, but who least deserves it. Not a lovely person or a lovable person, but an unlovely or unlovable person. It's all well and good to love another patient person, another kind person, another humble person, a peaceful person. That person is very lovable. They're probably high on your list of who you invite for dinner parties. But to love an impatient person, to actually be patient with them, to love an unkind person, to be kind to them, a proud one, an angry one, that's another story. Because that person is not very lovely, are they? But the reality is we are the most loving when we love the unlovable. That's when we express the most amount of love. We're the most loving when we love the person who doesn't deserve the love. So the person who has wronged you, the person who's dishonored you, who has lied to you, who is impatient, unkind, selfish, and proud, when you learn to love that person, that is when you begin to become truly loving. And therefore, that is when you begin to mature as a Christian. Jesus puts it like this in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Now, here's the point of all of this. Self-denying love for the sake, not just of others, but for those who don't deserve it. So self-denying love for the sake of others, especially those who don't deserve it, that's the indicator of true Christian maturity. If you're learning to do that, to take steps each day towards the kind of self-denying love that we're talking about, that means you're maturing as a Christian. This is the most excellent way of love that Paul's talking about here. This is the most excellent way. And the more that we learn to love with a self-denying love, the more that love becomes the, the sort of supreme constructive force of our lives. If you want to know what's shaping your life, if you want to know what is building your life towards maturity, Paul says self-denying love becomes the most supreme constructive force of our lives. That's the indicator of growth in our character. It's the secret of development for the Christian life. That's right at the heart of it. Now, if that's true, let's go back to, we talked about the self-love thing. How, what about self-love? Is he saying that we should only deny ourselves entirely? Uh, well, he's not talking about self-destruction. There's no sense here that the Christian must give up their own health and well-being in order to practice self-denying love. However, however, 
it is likely that the Christian needs to grow to be willing to give up their comfort, to give up their rights, to give up their desires, to give up their wants, maybe even their needs, and certainly their preferences in order to practice self-denying love. But look at the benefit of self-denying love. Look at the kind of person it says you become. Look at how worth it it is. You become patient. You become kind. You become the kind of person who rejoices in the successes of others rather than envious of them. You become humble. You become respectful of others rather than dishonoring of them. You become peaceful rather than angry. You become forgiving and no longer hold grudges. You become more truthful, you become more trusting, you become more hopeful, and you become more persevering. This is what happens when you learn the most excellent way of self-denying love. In other words, you become the kind of person that makes it easy for you to love and respect yourself. And what Paul is saying, it's not obvious to our culture that the way to become a healthy, self-loving person is first to become a person who loves others with self-denying love. It's not obvious to our culture, but put it this way. The more you exercise sacrificial love for others, the more you become the kind of person who will be filled with self-love, self-respect, and self-esteem. And again, it sounds backwards to our current culture, but this is biblical wisdom that has stood the test of time. This this is is still ringing true 2,000 years later. And so, now if that's the case... Where then do we get the strength to exercise this kind of self-denying love for the sake of others, especially those who least deserve it? Where does that come from? And that's point three, the source of love. Now, we said at the beginning, Paul is not giving us a definition of love, but a description. But let's think for a minute about where does Paul get this description? Where does it come from? We did that little exercise earlier where we put our names in and realized that it doesn't describe anyone in this room very well. Uh, So... You know, could it be that Paul had in mind a conglomeration of 15 different people for all 15 descriptions? Is that possible? Did he sort of, you know, it's like, we'll take some from you guys over here, some of you over here, have that patience thing down. Some of you guys, no, you guys don't have anything down, so we'll go back over here. Is that what Paul is doing here? No, that's not what he's doing. Um, In 1921, the General Mills Corporation uh, launched a new product line called Betty Crocker. Uh, There she is. That's Betty Crocker. Um, And in 1936, uh, they actually commissioned a painting of Betty Crocker to use in their advertisements. And so here she is. Uh, Isn't that great? You've always wondered what Betty Crocker looks like. Well, that's what she looks like, except that's not what she looks like because Betty Crocker is not a real person. I'm really sorry. Some of you who have this like sort of nostalgic thing that you like to cook things from, you know, from a long time ago. She's not a real person. She's a conglomeration of several women who worked in the headquarters at General Mills. And they've actually, uh, I think there's about eight different paintings of her over time uh, where they just sort of updated her image to make sure that she fit in with, you know, the modern woman or something like that. I, don't, I think they do have a, a new one now, but, you know, that, they also need Bill Crocker or something like that for our culture today. Um, Paul doesn't have in mind here a conglomeration He hasn't looked around the church in Corinth and he's like, I'll just grab 15 descriptions from 15 people. He's got one person in mind. Yeah, because only Jesus Christ could live this out. He alone is utterly patient. 
He alone is utterly kind. He alone is utterly humble. He alone is utterly self-denying. In fact, let's try our little exercise again and see if this rings true. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not boast. Jesus is not proud. Jesus does not dishonor others. Jesus is not self-seeking. Jesus is not easily angered. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Jesus never fails. And I think that checks out, doesn't it? And so to really understand the source of love, you don't need to pull together a conglomeration of all the most loving people you know and try to follow them. You only need to look to Christ and to follow him. And so the most excellent way is the most excellent way because it is the way of Jesus. Jesus was kind to crowds and individuals who came to him for healing, and he healed them. Jesus was patient with his disciples when they didn't understand what he was saying and when they did stupid things. Jesus didn't envy the wealth of the upper crust of society. Instead, he had nowhere to lay his head. Jesus didn't dishonor even the worst of sinners who were presented before him, but instead erased their record of wrongs right then and there. He spoke truth rather than lies. He showed compassion and mercy rather than anger. He persevered all the way through the cross to the point of death. And this is love. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us who didn't deserve it. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, this is the reason why any of this matters to us who are Christians, that without Jesus loving us this way, there's no way that I could stand up here and tell anyone to practice self-denying sacrificial love. I would have no grounds to do so. Because look at the middle description, again, of love. What does it say? Remember, love is not self-seeking. That kind of love, self-denying love, is only accessible to us and only desirable to us because Jesus Christ was the one who ultimately exercised self-denying sacrificial love. In fact, the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthian church in this very same letter a couple chapters later that if this didn't happen, if Jesus Christ didn't die and rise from the dead, then all Christians are to be most pitied above all people. But the Christian contention, the Christian belief is that Jesus Christ, the God who himself is love, was born of a virgin, lived an utterly sinless, good and virtuous life, And it was he who, through the greatest act of self-denying love ever committed, it was he who died the death of a sinner on the cross. A death that he did not deserve. The most lovely and lovable person in all of history dying for you and I because of our sins. The lovely dying for the unlovely. And it's through trusting in his death, burial, and resurrection. That is what makes us utterly lovely, completely lovable. In other words, Jesus' act of self-denying love, it, it not only removes the penalty of our unkindness, of our impatience, of our pride, of our anger, and so on. Not only does his act of self-denying love remove those things from us, and we are declared lovable, 
But through trusting in Jesus and by the work of the Holy Spirit, we see growing up in us like little green shoots, things like kindness and patience and humility and faith and hope and perseverance and so on. And so listen, to love yourself, to have self-love, that's a good thing. But even better, to grasp the extent to which you are loved by God is an even better thing. Now remember what Paul is saying is actually it's counter to our culture. It was counter to his own culture too. He's saying the way to become a healthy, self-loving person is first to become a person who loves others with self-denying love. And the never-ending source of that kind of love for your life is found only in the person of Jesus Christ who denied himself for us. And so the person who is maturing in Jesus is a person then who is maturing in this kind of self-denying love. And the source of that is Christ himself. Because think about this. When are you most like Jesus? Are you most like Jesus when you're like, Stacking up all the things that you want out of life? Are you most like Jesus when you're trying to orchestrate all the relationships around you to benefit you in some way? No. When are you most like Jesus? You're most like Jesus when you love like him. Put it another way. You're most like Jesus when you sacrifice yourself for the sake of others. Now, there's a temptation here. Uh, that I could put this on you like a burden. That I could say to you, okay, now go. Go and, go and do this self-denial thing. Go this week and do this. There's a temptation here that I could say that, or there's a temptation here that you could just take that on your back yourself and say, okay, well, Ken said that to mature as a Christian, I have to do the self-denying love thing. But don't walk away this morning thinking you somehow have to try harder. Or that you even have to do any of this out of guilt or compulsion. No, no, no. That's not how this works. It's out of the love that you have received from Christ. Either from him directly by his spirit or through the church, his people. It's out of the love that you have received that you have all the resources you need to practice self-denying love for the sake of others. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago, but I think it's worth repeating that if you're a Christian... We know there are three things that are absolutely true of you. And it's at the very center of those three things, uh, right right at the very center of those, is the love that God has for you. This is what makes it not a burden. This is what makes it a joy. Number one, I hope you remember this. You are a son or daughter to an eternally loving father. If you're a Christian, that is who you are. That is the most central thing about you. You are a son or daughter to an eternally loving father. Which means, as Paul says, God has lavished his love upon you. Or as he says, the Holy Spirit pours out his love into our hearts so that we would cry out the Father. That is the most central thing about you. You are a son or daughter to an eternally loving Father. And so you have all of that love poured out on you. Number two, you are the brother or sister to eternally loved siblings. Which means a couple of things. One... All the people that are around you, they are so loved by God. As much as he loves you, he loves them. But also, then that means that we get to love them too with that love. And that part of God pouring his love into their life is that you would love them. And part of God pouring his love into your life is that they would love you. 
So you are a brother or sister to an eternally loved siblings. And then number three, you are a messenger to an eternally loved humanity that doesn't know the extent to which they are loved unless you tell them. And so this love that God has poured out on you as an individual, this love that God has poured out into our church as a community is then expressed into an eternally loved humanity that has no idea the extent to which they're loved unless we go and tell them. This is why it's not a burden. This is why it's a joy. And if you can orient your life around those, that central truth that you are loved by God, that he pours his love out onto you, he lavishes it upon you. If you can orient your life around that or those three truths, then there is no end to the ability to grow in love for others. In other words, get this, there is no end to your ability to mature as a Christian. Every single one of us is capable because of the love that we've received to become more patient, more kind, more humble, less grudge-holding, more truthful, more hopeful, and more persevering. Now, let me just wrap all this up by telling you why we're talking about this, why start this series, why awkwardly do it the day before Valentine's Day. Mostly so I could do that little turn at the start and make you feel uncomfortable. That's really why we're doing it now. Now, the real reason is, um, we've said it a couple times uh, before the new year came, but our vision for our church this year is to actually build our reputation in our neighborhood and in our city. Um, Because we're a new church, but at the same time, we're a church that has merged and inherited about 100 years of history, we have a new reputation to build. And we thought it important to focus this year on what we want our reputation to be. So what will people outside the church think of us if they visit us or even see us if we're out front before church? What would someone say to their friend or coworker or their neighbor about us if they came and visited us one week? And we said we want that to be two things. Number one, that Christ Church was the most loving and welcoming group of people that I've ever come across. So if they were to say to their their coworker tomorrow, yeah, I went to church, I went to this church, what was it like? That was the most loving and welcoming group of people I've ever come across. That's what we want people to say about us. And number two, we want them to say it's clear that they love Jesus. Above all things, they love Jesus. Those two things. And that's why we're looking at this passage for five weeks, although next week we'll take a brief hiatus from it to eat tacos and hear from Bill. But just imagine... What if we had a whole church of people learning to love in this way? Like, what kind of force for good would we be for one another? None of us would have a need that's not met. None of us would ever walk through life wondering if we're loved by another person. What kind of force for good will we be for one another? But then think about this and let it ripple out. What kind of force for good will we be for this city? And honestly, who wouldn't want to be part of a group of people who are growing to become patient, kind, non-envious, not proud, but humble, non-angry, non-resentful, truthful, trusting, hopeful, persevering? I think every single lonely person in this city would want to be part. Every single broken person in this city. Every single hurting person, lost person, would want to be part of a community like that. 
So that's the way of love. That's why it's the most excellent way. Can you think of any better way to live? I can't. In order to do that, we have to ask God's help. So let me pray. Our Father, we confess to you all the ways that we don't match up, that where we put our names in this passage, we, we recognize the, our impatience and our unkindness and our pride. Father, we recognize and confess all of those things to you, and we know that by your spirit we can become more of those things. And so, Father, through the work of your Son and your Spirit in our lives, Lord, would we learn this most excellent way, this way of love. We ask that people would, when they talk about our church, they would say that is the most loving, welcoming group of people I've ever met in my life. We ask that you'd make it so. In Jesus' name, amen.